Christmas. And it's in this brief series that I want us to look together over the coming weeks um, at this topic that I'm calling the transforming power of Christmas. I, I want us to see in the Christmas story that God is a God on mission, that he is a and I'm sorry about that popping. We can't figure it out. I've tried to situate this thing in different places. But um, anyway, if you can try and ignore it, that'd be great. Um, we'll try and fix it for next week. But, um, but I want us to see that God is a, a missional God, that he is active and that he is involved. He's a God who went out to his broken creation in order to redeem, redeem that creation. I mean, that's the wonderful good news of the gospel. And through this series, I want to show you that if you understand this story, and if you believe this story, and if you're captivated by the beauty of it, this wonderful good news will in fact begin to change and transform you. It'll turn you into a person who's actively involved in mission right where you live, with your friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers. And the simple reason for that is that this story it has the power both to pull you in and heal you, but also has the power to send you out in order that you would bring healing to others. And so in this, story, in this, uh, this passage, we're going to read in Mark chapter 10 about how Jesus tells us very clearly that he came into this world. He came into this world and took on flesh and was born in a manger in order to die. So let's read together Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. It's God's holy and inerrant word. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them that he, what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's go before him and ask for his help. Father, we rightly come into your presence to ask for your help now. Help that we would understand your word. 
help that your word would be applied to us. Asking for you to mercifully and graciously change us underneath your word. For we know that whenever you open your mouth to speak, you call things into being and you raise the dead. In fact, the very first pages of your word tell us that when you open your mouth to speak, it's by the power of your voice that you created everything. And when your son came and walked this earth, it was by the power of his voice that he spoke to the blind and they saw, to the lame and they were made to walk, to the deaf and they were made to hear. He spoke even into the tomb and called out the dead and made them alive again. Father, we pray that we would hear your voice by your spirit with that kind of power this morning, power to heal us, power to even raise the dead and wake us from our slumber. As we come into this room to worship you, we all come and We're facing various things in life. Not all of them are the same. Some come into this room burdened with guilt. Others burdened with anxiety about the week to come. Others facing hardship and trial in this life, wondering where you are. Others have come here knowing how needy they are. Anxious to hear Just a word, a sentence that would help them remember that you are a God of mercy and of grace. Still others come this morning and find themselves far too comfortable in this life. Bless them incredibly. They don't see their desperate need of you. Father, though we all face different things, in this life, that we all come into this room walking through different places in life. We pray that this morning, underneath your word, that you would help us to realize that we're really all the same. Because the truth is, is that no matter what's going on in our lives, we are all broken. We have all fallen short of your glory. We are all far more sinful than we know than we can even imagine about ourselves and so we stand together in need of the hope of the gospel we stand together in need of the lord jesus christ his person and his work so that it can be true of us that trusting in him though we're far more broken than we know because of what he has done for us we are also far more loved And far more secure, far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. So we pray that you would help us to see and to understand and to apply this good news to our lives this morning. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Jesus, in this story here, he tells us that he came in order to serve and to die. But he's also telling us in this passage that in doing so, he's going to turn the world upside down, right? His death, he is saying, is going to transform his followers and move them out into lives of service, into laying down their lives for others. I mean, even just on the surface, I think that's a pretty startling 
proposition. But I wonder if we realize just how radical it is. Because you see, it completely, this kind of transformation completely cuts across the grain of our natural inclinations and, uh, and instincts. In 1944, C.S. Lewis, he gave a speech at the University of London, and the title of that speech was The Inner Ring. And he had an awful lot to say in that speech, but in that speech, the inner rings uh, that he refers to, they're, they're groups of people that are drawn, he says, by invisible lines, but are clear to everyone. You know, he's saying there's, there's a them and an us. There's an outside and an inside, right? And I, w- I want you to listen to just a few lines from that speech. Lewis said, I believe that in all men's lives at certain periods and in many men's lives at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, which captures all of us here. One of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring and the terror of being left outside. And later on, he said, until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider, you will remain. The quest of the inner ring will break your hearts Unless you break it. And then in the middle, middle of the speech he said this. My main purpose in this address is simply to convince you that this desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human, human action. It is one of the factors which go to make up the world as we know it. Now here is Jesus saying that he came, right? Meaning he left the ultimate inner ring. The Trinity, right? He came, he left, he came to us to pour out his life in service and to die. And he is saying that it is going to be the same thing for his followers. He is sending you out and that is scary if you're paying attention. Because if Lewis is right that the desire to be in the inner ring, right, to be on the inside, if it really is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action, then for Jesus to move us out, from our comfortable circles, from our holy huddles, from the inner rings that make us feel so secure and actually lay down our lives and risk possible rejection and and suffer to serve those outside, then that has to be truly radical transformation. And to see the radical nature of this transformation, I want us to look at three things this morning in this passage. I want us to see our bondage to self, our dying Savior, Savior, and our transforming freedom. So first, our bondage to self. I mentioned Martin Luther uh, a couple of weeks ago because he said that man's nature is that man is naturally curved in on himself. We are naturally bent and curved in pursuing our own glory, our own self-fulfillment, our own agendas. We're turned in on ourselves, right? And it really is bondage for us to be turned in on ourselves. It is slavery, Look, in verses 32 through 34, you can look at those verses. And Jesus told his disciples there that he was going to going to Jerusalem and he was going there to die. Now, if you read through the gospel of Mark, there's a reason it says in that passage that again, Jesus told them this, because this is now the third time in this gospel story that Mark is telling that Jesus has told them about his coming death in Jerusalem. Right. But obviously for these disciples, it hasn't registered yet. I mean, they don't, they don't get it because immediately after Jesus tells them this, James and John come to Jesus with this request in verse 37. They want to sit on his right and his left when Jesus comes in his glory. But see, they do not get it. 
Because Jesus has been saying repeatedly, my moment of glory is on a cross. My moment, of, my, my moment of glory comes when I am lifted up to die. But instead, here they are jockeying for position, right? Places of honor and eminence and importance and authority for themselves. Certainly you can see the curved in nature of their request by what they say in verse 36, right? They say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. We're in it for us. Now, before we single these two out unfairly, we need to recognize that the rest of the disciples are in the same boat because verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, right? In a moment, their tempers flared as soon as they heard about this. Why? Well, because James and John had jumped in front of them, right? They had beat them to the punch. I mean, that's the story, right? Everyone grasping for himself, for his own power, for his own fame, for his own glory, for his own position, and to all that, Jesus says this in verse 42. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. See, here he's talking about the Romans, the occupying government at the time. And he's saying, look, you despise those who are in power over you, right? The ways they exploit you and the ways they impose upon you. You hate the way these rulers exercise their dominion and their authority over you. But you're no different from them. You're acting just like them. You want to be elevated over others in position of positions of power. You're after your own glory, your own agenda, your own self-importance. I mean, isn't it interesting how this works? We think that if we can somehow manipulate the world or the, the people around us into revolving around us, our agendas our goals, all these kind of things. If we can get that seat of position and power or recognition of glory, something like that, if we can just get a hold of that, then we'll be free. We'll be on the inside and free. But the more you grasp, the tighter the chains get, right? You are in bondage to yourself and you are becoming the very thing you hate. This is a, a fair warning for the coming weeks, but I'm rereading The Hobbit right now to get ready for, for the new movie that's coming out. And so, um, so you're probably going to get more Tolkien illustrations than usual. But I was thinking this past week about the story of the Lord of the Rings, right? And if you've seen the movies or read the books, you, you know the general plot, right? How this ring has come to this hobbit named Frodo, right? And Frodo, he's supposed to take this ring... And he, he's going to go out on this adventure and he's going to take it to the fires of Mount Doom. And he's going to throw that ring, that evil ring, into the fire and destroy that ring. And, and so the story, you know, kind of follows him on his journey and his, his fellow adventurers on this quest, right? And if you read the book or if you watch the movie, you, you just naturally find yourself cheering this little hobbit Frodo on, right? You're, you're cheering for him to accomplish this, this task that's been given to him. But... What happens? I mean, if you remember the story, you remember that he gets all the way to Mount Doom. To the fires of Mount Doom. And he can't do it. He cannot let that ring go. And that's when you realize at that moment that Frodo didn't have the ring, but the ring had Frodo, right? He had become a slave to it. He was in its clutches and under its power, and the ring was promising him freedom. But the harder he grasped at that freedom, the deeper into the clutches of slavery he went. 
mean, it's actually kind of a sad ending. You know, the hero of the story, he couldn't do it in the end. And if you remember the story, it's actually this creature, Gollum, that grabs the ring, right, and falls into the fire and destroys the ring that way. But that was the point of the story, right? Frodo couldn't do it. He was in bondage. In what ways are you grasping for freedom, but finding yourself falling deeper and deeper into bondage? Look at this story, Mark. The disciples, they appear to be so ambitious, right? I I, I mean, they're go-getters. They're showing real aspiration and tenacity, right? Ambition, aspiration, tenacity, those can be very good things, right? But often those traits in our lives, they are hiding and masking real deep bondage. You thinking you have to prove yourself, right? Prove my worth and my importance. And maybe it comes out in your interpersonal relationships, or maybe it comes out in your career, or you try desperately to make someone love you because then you'll be secure. Or maybe it bubbles to the surface in your life and your efforts to try and be more moral and more disciplined and more good. Then you'll get on the inside, right? Or maybe it flashes to the surface in your desire to succeed and to accomplish and achieve And then you think, if I get that, then I'll be on the inside of the inner ring. And you know from experience, don't you, that the more you have to have, the harder and more desperately you grasp, the tighter the chains get. Till one day, your career, your moral performance, your desire for success, your neediness for for love, it has you in its grip and it won't let go. The second, I, I want us to consider our dying Savior because see, I know that the temptation is to say about that first point, you kind of want to hear it with a little bit of safety, a little cushion. So you kind of hear it and you go, yeah, I know people like that. Um, I know people who are in bondage to themselves and that kind of thing. But look, if we are all naturally curved in on ourselves, that means that it gets expressed in all kinds of different ways in our lives. And that we're all naturally grasping for ourselves. And so the question is, how does it express itself in your life? Where in your life do you see the bondage uh, to yourself expressed? What do you think you have to have? Because until you know that you really are in bondage, you won't be able to appreciate this good news. That we have a Savior who came to die to release us from that bondage. You see, when Jesus says in verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In a sense, you have to you have to do a little work and put away some of the nostalgia and the uh, sentimentality that you have for the nativity scene, because Jesus is saying he is saying, I came, I was born under a death sentence. I came into this world to die. And I want you to see in the second point that Jesus tells us in this passage why he had to die. And please pay close attention to this this point, because if you miss this point, you don't just miss the Christmas story. You miss Christianity altogether. The reason for Jesus' death is the hinge on which Christianity turns, right? All that description of his condemnation in those opening verses that we read, verses 32 through 34, Jesus explains in verse 45 with this word ransom, right? Ransom is the idea of setting a prisoner or setting a slave free with a payment, right? The payment is given in exchange for the slave and sets him free. The payment is what secures release from bondage. 
And that little preposition for in verse 45, to give his life a ransom for many, is the Greek word anti. Right? And that word means instead of or in the place of, a substitute, right? Jesus came to die in the place of his people. His death was an exchange. It was a payment. It was his life for yours. He died to make payment so that you could go free. Now, I know when you read through this passage, uh, if you're like me or like most people, verses 38 through 40 can appear a little cryptic at first. You know, verse 38, Jesus asked them, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? What in the world is Jesus talking about? In the Old Testament, the cup was often a metaphor for the wrath of God's justice, right? And baptism, according to one scholar, Dr. William Lane, in popular Greek usage, was used to speak of being overwhelmed by disaster or danger. Right? See, G- this is what G- Jesus is saying. My Father is going to pour that cup out on me. That cup that has been storing up God's hatred and fury against sin. I am going to drink that cup. It's going to be poured out on me. And I am going to be the one who is overwhelmed by disaster and the terror of God's justice. And it's those little words, ransom for many, which explain why Jesus would do that. That have the power to really set you free in this life. He wasn't overwhelmed by disaster or plunged under the furies of God's wrath to inspire you. He didn't go through that to be an example for you. All your debts were cast on him. He was making payment for you. A payment was absolutely necessary for you and I to be set free from our slavery. And Jesus is saying, I paid your ransom with my life. That's why I came to die. I love how this one preacher put it when he said that there is a sense in which God, when he created the world, he could just say, let there be light. And there was light, right? But he couldn't do that when it came to forgiveness. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. He created the world in an instant and he recreated the world on a cross. He had to make payment. You were in bondage, sold as a slave to your sin. And he came to make an exchange, his life for yours. I mean, that's what we're celebrating in Christmas. We were in bondage and Jesus came into this world. He came into this world born under a death sentence to exchange his life for yours. So that you and I, who we could go free. Now, finally, our transforming freedom. Jesus came to set you free. But not just for freedom's sake. He came to set you free in order to change you and turn you into something beautiful. He came to set you free so that he could work the fruit of his character out in your life. You know, earlier we talked about verse 42, how Jesus compares his disciples' self-centered request with uh, the the way the rulers of their day wielded their power. But then he said in verse 43, Not so with you. In other words, you are going to be different. Jesus is saying to his followers, I am turning the values of this world completely upside down and inside out. It's going to be different because Jesus came and he didn't conquer with his might or his power or with a sword. He came and he conquered through weakness and death on a cross. And Jesus is saying, so will you. 
That is how my followers will live. I want you to think with me back, if if you can, to those quotes earlier from C.S. Lewis' speech on the inner ring. We are all of us desperately trying to get on the inside, right? We're grasping at power and honor and glory and acceptance and all kinds of things. We're trying to get on the inside. And do you remember what Lewis said? He said, the quest of the inner ring, it will break your heart unless you break it. That kind of grasping is going to crush you, right? It's going to smother you and it's going to choke the life out of you unless you can break the inner ring. So what if, right? What if Jesus earned his father's approval in your place? What if Jesus completely satisfied divine justice for you? Right? What if Jesus earned in your place an eternal inheritance? What if Jesus really did make full payment and was forsaken in your place so that you would never need to fear being forsaken? And what if Jesus loved you this much that he came into the world knowing that he would be born under a death sentence for you? And what if, as the story goes... Jesus was actually taken outside of the city gate to be crucified and to die a shameful death in order that he could bring you all the way in to his father's family. Friends, if that is true, and it is, by the way, if that is true, then the power of the inner ring has been broken for you. And you are finally free to stop grasping and freedom can move for you from a concept all the way down into your experience. I mean, if it really is true, you can finally stop doing the math. Do you know what I mean by that? I mean, all your calculations, right? What's in it for me if I sacrifice? You know, will I be noticed? Will I feel better about myself? Will I be able to make God happy with me? The only math that matters was done at the cross when Jesus exchanged his life for yours and set you free. And see, this is why, as a friend of mine puts it, That the kingdom of God, when it comes, it always results in a community that looks outward and not inward. Did you catch what Jesus said in verse 44? This is how his upside down value reverse kingdom works. Whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. Now, this is not the gospel makes you a slave just to other people who are like you. This is not just being a servant to other Christians, not just to those who share the same worldview as you, not just a servant to those who who won't threaten your comfort in this life. The gospel pulls you all the way in so that you are free to face all the way out so that you can indeed become a slave to all. Some of you have seen the new Les Mis movie. It's coming out soon. I hope you're excited. I am. Um, I love that story. The main character in that story is a guy whose name I never grow tired of saying, Jean Valjean. It just sounds so right, especially for a guy like me with a French last name. But anyway, when you watch the movie, you see the story unfold, right? You, you, You get overwhelmed, right, by at this character, Jean Valjean and his grace that is just poured out of his life. Right. The immense freedom that he has throughout this story to look 
out for the needs of others. Throughout the whole movie, he goes about ransoming people and setting people free and paying their debts and securing their freedom and serving them. I mean, he saves the life of this man named Lafitte, right? When he could no longer work and he gave him money to keep him from poverty. He frees this woman named Fantine who was unjustly arrested and he gives clothes and food to orphans and he literally paid for the freedom of Fantine's daughter, Cassette. You remember that? He secured the freedom for this young man named Marius. And even when he had the opportunity to exact justice, right, and vengeance at least, on this officer named Javert who had really sought to ruin his life, at the very end he just sets him free. I mean, it's everywhere. He's always facing outward in generosity. He's become a slave to all. And there's a really, really simple explanation for, for why Jean Valjean is that way. It's at the beginning of the story when Jean Valjean, he had stolen silver from this priest. And when he had been caught by the police and he was returned to this priest, right? You remember this part of the story? Instead of the priest throwing him in jail, the priest actually gave him more of his silver. Right. If you've seen the movie, you might remember the dialogue uh, when, when this takes place, because the priest looked at Jean Valjean and he said to him, and don't forget, don't ever forget, you've promised to become a new man. And startled, Jean Valjean looks at him at this priest and he says, he asks, promise, he says, why are you doing this? And the priest looks back to him and he says, Jean Valjean, my brother. You no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. He says, I've ransomed you. Ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. To find the transforming freedom of the gospel, you have to first be ransomed. Let me tell you what what I want for you individually and for myself and for the ministry of this church. I want you... And I want us to be able to break this quest for the inner ring and find real freedom to move outward in the service of others. I want us to be free to break from the holy huddle and move out towards our neighbors and our friends in this community with the truth of the gospel that really is for any and all who will believe. I mean, I want us to be set free from our nasal gazing, which is really built upon our own insecurity and pride. And I want us to find freedom to move out towards the needs of others winsomely, offering the hope of Jesus. But I'm telling you, please don't try and go and do this in your own strength. Because you will make such a disastrous mess of it. And you will not be winsome to any if you go like that. You try to do it in your own strength, and what you'll actually do is you'll turn the service of others into bondage to yourself. Just a different form of it. The only way to face outward in grace and mercy, the only way to find freedom to serve, the only way to do that is to understand that you have been ransomed by the King of Kings. He came to die in the place of his people. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. When we are given a moment to look at our lives and when our thinking is clear, we do recognize that we often think we have to have so many things. 
And we recognize that we're really grasping creatures. Grasping for our own glory, our own self-importance. And we do so out of pride. We do so out of insecurity. We do so out of fear. We do so out of a great many motives. Father, I pray that you would let this good news of the gospel settle deeply on our hearts. That we would understand the truth that Jesus came into this world. He took on flesh. He was born in a manger. He came and was born under a death sentence in order that he could give his life as a ransom for his people. In order that he could set us free and set us free to become like him, to move out into this world with great freedom and joy and humility. Not fearing the risk or the rejection or the suffering. Doing so freely because we know that we're already on the inside. Because Jesus was crucified outside the city. He did so to bring us all the way in. And Father, we pray that 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 good news it would result in us moving out towards our friends, our family, our co-workers, our community with the hope and the grace of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.